this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, it's another interview episode. Can you believe Um, it? I can. I'm excited about this one. Yes. That means Chip's back with us. How you doing, Chip? It's been a while. It has been. You know, I'm thinking um, uh, we should have a... Uh, I, I, we talked about having a, a theme song for for me, right? Like maybe uh, "Rats Back for More" would be. Good. <laughs> there you go. I'm back for more. I'm back for more interviews. So share with us and our audience who is joining us on this episode as far as being interviewed. So this is an epic two hour long interview, but I yes. promise you it's it's very it's very worth it. Uh, joining. Joining us this time around is Jeremy Toback. Dig Me Out listeners probably know Jeremy from his, if you read liner notes and if you're familiar with the band Brad, which you guys have reviewed a Brad record and you interviewed Sean Smith. Um, Jeremy was one of the, one of the members in the early days of Brad. He played on the first two, maybe three records and then kind of spun off and did his own solo career. I remember the first solo record, Perfect Flux thing. Jay, did you have that? I did. Yeah. I remember, uh, I remember getting it when it came out. Cause I was pretty excited about his involvement in Brad. I thought he, he brought the super group vibe to their sound mm-hmm. like, with his material was a little bit different. His voice was a little bit different. It just rounded the record out. Uh, so when he left, I was a little disappointed and I was curious to see what his solo stuff would, would be like. So I, I do remember picking that record up. He, uh, and we talk about it, of course, in the interview, but you know, the, uh, another true fiction is his, is his follow-up to perfect flux thing. And it just came out at a weird time. Now uh, we talk about it in the interview, but he, um, he, he ended up on like on the Lollapalooza side stage of the year, the corn headlined, uh, but he is, he's definitely more of a singer songwriter. Uh, we talk about this a little bit in the interview, but I always thought of him as like, and, and you'll hear me say this, but I always thought of him, if Dave Matthews was like the granola eating college bartender in a frat town, Jeremy Toback was like the equal, but in a coffee shop as a philosophy major at an Ivy League, Ivy League school. Like <laughs> they're sort of the same people and they might have the same influences somewhere along the lines. But um, I think fans of both would appreciate each other. And we again, we talked about that, but that, that was what was kind of popular at that time. And um you know, like I said, two hours, so we should cut to it, but I will say there's a couple it. times, there's a couple times in the interview, uh, where, where, you know, we're 30 years, 25 years, 30 years past those albums and those releases. And, uh, Jeremy does give a couple, I would say exclusives. I, you know, they're 30 years later, but, um, drop some, drop some bombs about maybe some of the days in Brad and some of the contractual stuff that he wasn't real happy with and his reason for leaving the band. Uh, again, we talked for almost an hour about his joining Brad in the first record. We barely touched upon anything after that with Brad and then wow, jumped into cool. the second half. He, um, you know, a little spoiler, if, if you're not going to sit through the two hours, maybe you want to fast forward to the end of it. Um, I did ask him if he had a chance to kind of talk to Sean and, and kind of reconnect with the guys. Um, cause they've been apart for, for some time and, and, and he does tell a story about how he, he 
reconnected with him and kind of, a, um, you know, somewhat of a, of a personal story about, about talking to Sean and seeing Sean for the last time, uh, maybe not the last time, I'm sorry, but, but reconnecting with him that yeah. he said, I think he said he had never told anybody that story before. So wow, That's good stuff. So cool. Well, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to listening to this. So let's get into it. This is Chip's interview with Jeremy Toback. So, Jeremy, welcome to the Dig Me Out podcast. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you, man. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's been, um, I think we met in person, maybe. I Actually, you and I were talking before we started recording about right. the memories. Um, I'm almost positive I saw you in Columbus at Lollapalooza. Oh, okay, great. And like we may yeah. have met, I, I imagine we met there in like 1997-ish. Yeah. Yeah, I was on that Lollapalooza. <laughs> but I really like I don't really have strong memories of meeting you there. So this is we we've talked on the phone once and um I'm gonna give a little bit of the story about how we met. I don't know if you remember, but I remember distinctly, although my nineties memories are are fading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at Use Kids Records in Columbus, Ohio. I was going through the CDs and Use Kids obviously sold used CDs and promo CDs. And I'm we'll get to this in a second, but had you your first solo EP, did that come out after you were on the Brad record? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going through the CDs and like your name popped out and I couldn't remember if it was because I knew it from Brad or whether I just randomly picked out a Jeremy Toback CD, but I got the EP. Um, but I distinctly remembered, I still have the CD with the sticker. It was a $3 sticker from the EP. It, but the thing that was cool, and that was like early-ish days of the internet and you had an AOL email address, I think on the back or on the inside. And <laughs> I sent you an email and I don't remember what it said, but I think I basically said I picked up your CD and I really like it a lot. And I was writing for a magazine at the time, I think maybe all I know is that I emailed you and you responded. And that was maybe like one of the early interactions I've ever had with an artist of like, it was almost like, you know, you and I growing up sending letters off to a PO box and getting a response was amazing. Yeah, totally. Like I sent a, uh, I sent a letter to uh, Asia. (laughs) Oh, really? And I got like the form response, you know, the boys are so glad to hear from me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But yeah, so it, it's been, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was like 1997. So uh, you and I have traded notes back and forth, you know, there's oh, yeah. probably, there's probably been years where we haven't talked, but, um, but again, it's, it's really cool to be able to like actually see you and talk to you this way instead of over a phone or through email. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that's like the sort of joy of like my life really out of date email list is like there's just people on there from like and if your email address is still good we're going to be in touch you know yeah so uh in the intro we talked about kind of how many of the dig me out listeners might know you um but let's talk about that a little bit you were in the band brad with sean smith um let's talk actually a little bit about how you got to be in Brad. So uh, I actually just read an interview this morning that you did, I don't know when, a couple of years ago, maybe, and that you had been in a band in, was it in New Jersey? You'd been uh, in a band that's something, uh, something. I had a call that had nothing to do with Brad, but I was, I had a right. band 
I went to Princeton and we had a band called Noise Pedals, like Flower Pedals, very much like an REM. Like we did covers and originals. I love that band. Uh, but, uh, but that was like that was like in the late '80s, and that's sort of yeah. the start of your music career. Totally. Yeah. And uh, you you picked up bass. Uh, I don't want to say. I think I read you were 15 when you picked up bass. So not like not probably, later in life, but it was a little bit later than maybe some some kids picked stuff up. Oh, totally. Yeah, like very like late on, but it kind of came like it was like one of those things where it's like quickly became. I won't say good at it because it's like I was a young player, you know, too many notes and like my feel wasn't quite there, but like I kind of, I definitely had a thing for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you went to Princeton. So that was, was that a high school band or a college band? Uh, I did have a high school band, uh, notably with Ryland Al- Allison, whose dad was in Paul Revere and the Raiders and Anthony Wilson, who plays with. I'm going to be really lame because she's a huge artist in her own right, but she's married to Elvis Costello. Um, oh, Diana Krall? She's an amazing guitar player. Like, so that I was in a band with that guy who, like, when I could barely play, and that guy was like already a jazz prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> the band was not as good as its elements, I don't think, but um, yeah, that was Native Sun, S U N. And then Noise Pedals was my college band, which was great. Um, Included a future lawyers and MD PhD. And you went to Princeton. Where where did you grow up? Where were you born and raised? I grew up in LA. I'm a SoCal. Oh. And this is where I live now. Um, we're in Laurel Canyon right here. Um, so uh, was it um, was it was it Princeton because of your grades and your ambitions, or was it Princeton to get as far away from home as possible? I was like really kind of, I mean, weirdly like a grinder in high school and just like that kid and did three sports and jazz band. And I don't know what I was trying to prove to myself in the world, but like, yeah. So it was kind of like I got in, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And everybody was like, including the school was like, well, you're going. Um, and I went and uh, uh, ended up kind of not really, I went there for architecture and I was like, I just sort of fell in love with music and, school it's not that i didn't do school while i was there but it was like quickly became apparent that like um music was going to be my thing like rem was happening and i just fell hard and got my own band going and that was what i was really into doing you know so um and then so did you graduate from princeton i did i did graduate yeah i was like four years and then and then quickly moved back to la yeah, it was kind of I of of like that band made a EP which is on Spotify like um through some ghost distributor like we need to take it back so we can earn our 5 cents. <laughs> right. Uh, but I was the one who was like let's keep going and they were like yeah, my parents aren't into that. Or, <laughs> and so I was like, well, okay, fine. I'm going to go back to LA and um my dad who's deceased now like uh great dude was a commercial director and i knew that i could be a production assistant and kind of just make the bare minimum and pursue music and that's what you know that's what i did so, so in la that was what 91 so 92 i graduated in 88 okay. and i was here like for a bunch of years drifting through different bands as a bass player and trying to make things happen and um by the time 
Uh, do you want me to sort of like get us up to Brad real quick? Like how that happened? Yeah, but, well, yeah, yeah. But I do, I actually have, uh, so being in LA in that time period, I think yeah. um, my high school friends and I, we were from Cleveland. Um, yeah. There were more than two camps, but there was the camp of the REM and the Cure yeah. and alternative music. And then there was my camp of the uh, Poisons and Motley Crues and stuff. <laughs> so you're in LA at that time period. Did you fall into any of that hair metal stuff or were you, were you on the REM camp and not even paying attention to the, the yeah, big hair? That's great that you bring that up because LA at that time was completely hair metal. Oh, yeah. Like it was when I got out of college, like the ads, like no internet so there was this thing called the recycler and there was la weekly and you'd put ads but you put ads in the recycler which is like we're selling used goods like craigslist but the paper version and it's like all the ads would be like you know seeking raven-haired redder must have looks and i'd be like what the fuck like sorry you know oh, yeah. it was there was no alternative college rock scene to speak of in la it was very small i mean there was kind of there were some bands, like there was this band, I think, called Savage Republic that had their own really crafty vinyl label. And I forget what some of the bands were on there, but it's like they were older um, than I was or more. I wasn't in that scene. Um, so, yeah, I was completely on the other side. And I did meet this guy, Rich Ferguson, who's an amazing poet, whose record I like we ended up being roommates. <laughs> at the time that I got into Brad and he had like an ad for like the geometry of God, what was it? Oh my God. He had the craziest ad in the recycler. And I was like, this is the only person in here that I relate to. And I answered that ad and we tried to make bands together. And it was like, but we became, we're still dear friends. Like oh, that's awesome. there were so few of us. It was just, it was just, um, it was your camp, man. You guys were just dominating the scene. So you, you never, you never even entertained, like, I'm going to go try out for Jet Boy or LA Guns or those kind of bands. I mean, not at all. I was really, I was into my aesthetic and into yeah. the stuff. And there was other things going on, obviously, right? Like you had in like Pedro, you, you had Pedro, Pedro, you had like um, Minutemen and oh, Becoming right. Firehose, but those guys were already on their way. So the SST and I wasn't really a punk rocker. Like I was really like strum and hum. R.E.M. and Dream So Real and um, Miracle Legion. All I, Those are the bands that I was like super into. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now we can lead to, so you end up, you end up in Seattle. Like how, what was your trek from LA to Seattle and, and so the start of Brad? That, that I did end up getting into like kind of a scene that was building up around this place called the Onyx in, uh, in like borderline echo park i mean sorry borderline los Feliz, silver lake and met these guys like mark stewart who is in the um stew of the negro problem oh. i don't know yeah mm -hmm. we actually ended up co-writing and this guy michael whitmore all these sort of people and it also became um the scene that would lead into the silver lake lounge and the whole silver like scene right so like that was happening but i was basically in my apartment like writing trying to write like the equivalent of like free jazz art songs like i was like okay nothing will repeat <laughs> you know like you know like i'm going i'm trying to write the pure the most pure song ever written and i don't care if nobody ever like understands it and 
And I was teaching speed reading. Like I had moved from sort of being a PA and an art dog. Art dogs are the people that like, that's a step above production assistant. You get to go like onto sets and like, you're helping move furniture basically, but the department's really cool because everybody there's creative, right? And so I was doing that stuff. And then like, I was like, ah, I was ended up teaching speed reading. And this is like when I was really starting, finally started to play out starting to move towards playing out as like Jeremy Toback, like mm-hmm. doing up bikes and stuff. And I went up to visit my friend, like in between speed reading sessions, like I'm a shitty speed reader, by the way. Like, <laughs> what a terrible thing. Who wants to speed read? Slow read, dude. Like, <laughs> uh, I went up to visit my childhood best friend, this guy, Alex Rosenhaus in Seattle. I had like a couple weeks off. And uh, just crashed at his place. And this was sort of June of, it must have been like June of 93. Um, or my, it might have been, yeah, I'm trying to like, I get mixed up like when exactly yeah. that date is. It's before we made the first, because I think the Brad record came out in 93. So it had to be like the year before. Um, and I went up there and I'd heard about Alex's best friend, this guy Stone, and I knew he was in this band Pearl Jam. And I'd heard alive on the radio, actually with my friend Rich, we were both teaching the poet. Mm-hmm. Has a great records, by the way, that I play bass on. Um, and so we remember hearing Pearl Jam, that first record. It was totally not my music. Like I was like, this is kind of cool, but like, like 70s stadium rock influence stuff, like whatever. But I know the guy, you know, and um, so I went up there and actually crashed in Stone's bed and like the demo for 10 was there with like Jeremy on it. I'm like, that's funny. <laughs> There's a song that's got my name on it, you know, um, and I did not meet the first time I went up there. I didn't meet Stone, but the next time, which I think was was the June of whenever the year that friggin' like Pearl Jam broke. The next mm-hmm. time I went up there was literally June of that year. So they were get Pearl Jam was getting off of tour. Stone by that point already had his own place because he was in Pearl Jam. Right. <laughs> no longer rooming with Alex. Alex was the guy. Sorry, this is a little bit scatterfire, but no. Alex started Rock Candy, which okay. was one of the seminal grunge clubs. Like I think the video for Alive was shot there and probably some other, like, I think maybe Soundgarden did a video there too. And that, that's uh, your childhood friend. That's my childhood friend. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's very weird. He ended up, he moved to Seattle to study um, prosthetics at, at UW. His mom had had like cancer and he was like, okay, I don't know what I want to do. So like, she had to have her lower leg replaced. It had him. So it was like, okay, this is a business. I'll go up there, study that. He ends up meeting Stone. He ends up being becoming best friends. And he tour manages Mother Love Bone, I think, on their last tour. I don't think that Alex was a good tour manager. With him. <laughs> I don't know how much tour managing was going on. I think there's yeah. a lot of behavior. Uh, that's how that connection happens. I go up there. I've been hearing about Stone. Stone's been hearing about me. And there was this moment I remember where we're sitting at this coffee house and Seattle was like 
like the vibe there was like nothing I'd experienced. The LA scene, since I was not in the hair metal scene, like I didn't know what that energy felt like. And my scene was so just sort of like underground and mm -hmm. fractured and beginning. Like I'd never been in anything like that. The city was like all of the alt kids, which was everybody were just like, holy shit, we're in the gold rush. Like we're at the center of this thing, even though, and Regan, who would be the drummer and Brad, this was at his coffee house, him and his mom, I think had this coffee house. Oh, I haven't done my homework. The green cat or something. It was called something. Yeah. Um, and so you had on the one hand, like, people who had become literally some of the biggest rock stars in the world and people who are pulling, you know, lattes at coffee shops who would, who are still best friends. Right. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and just kind of like, there was this whole buzz going on and I, there was this guy there with long hair and I was like, I think that's stone and we're all at the same table. And I'm just, I don't know half these people. I'm just kind of sitting there and, and stone. Someone's like, who's this guy? I'm like, I'm Jeremy. And he's like, Holy shit. You're Jeremy. And I'm like, yeah, I think I actually have a picture of that meeting. Oh, really? if right around that time that Alex took, like that he sent me. And we just had a conversation and we had a couple more interactions over that trip, but we really just kind of hit it off in this like kind of immediate way, talking about music and drummers and the way we both thought about drummers and, it was kind of cool. I didn't really think much of it. I'd already met Sean and Regan on the previous trip and had a nice hang with those guys. And Sean was this really shy, but like sensitive dude who was clearly passionate about music. And we had a nice vibe and Regan was really cool. I didn't really think much about it. Um, they had a band called Bliss at the time, which would become Satchel. Uh, and they had this song that I remember Alex played me called Drift, which I don't know if it's even available anymore. And I just fucking love that song. And that was kind of it. Right. And I went back to L.A. to teach speed reading. I hope that you can edit whatever the hell you want. No, no, no. This is this is exactly what, what okay. I'm, I'm looking for and what our listeners are like to hear. No. through the cobwebs of my mind. No, this is awesome. This is great. Okay, cool. Um, I go back to L.A. to teach speed reading. It's blistering hot and i'm just like this is not as fun as seattle was <laughs> yeah. you know uh and i lived with rich ferguson uh in what i called like this my tenement palace it was like a total like 300 dollars a month i think we each paid right yeah and there were one dollar burritos across the street my vegetables were like the pickled carrots and jalapenos you got like i was just like I'm in heaven. Um, there was a bar that would later become like, now that it neighborhood's totally bouged out, totally oh, hipster. Yeah. Like the bar would later become like Silver Lake Ramen or something. And it was like, we called it the bar of yellow tape. It was like, it was like gay Mexican cowboys who would like shoot each other occasionally. And so there'd always be yellow tape. Like they yeah. like, and I, all the love for the gay Mexican cowboys. I'm like, <laughs> no, like, Seriously, no, no yeah. feelings one way or other, but it was like, it was that vibe, like that kind of like things were all over the place and it was not, Silver Lake is not what it was now. And I remember we had no cell phones. 
We had one phone. I don't even know if we had an answering machine. So if you called us, one of us had to be there. <laughs> right. Get in touch with us. And I happened to be there when uh, I think Rich picked up and Stone called. He got my number from Alan. And I was like, hey, dude, what's going on? Like, I did not expect to hear from Stone. He's like, hey, man, you know, um, this maybe seem out of the blue, but like, uh, Regan and I and Sean are going to like do some jamming in October. And I don't know, maybe we'll make a record. Um, and like, we hear you play, you know, I know you play bass. Alex says you're pretty good. Um, you want to come play with us? And I was like, uh, yeah, I play bass, but I, dude, I haven't practiced in like a year. I'm like literally at the piano trying to write these like three jazz improv <laughs> songs. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I don't really have my chops up. He's like, oh, time away from the instrument can be good. You know, I'm sure you'll be great. I was like, yeah, I'll do it, man. I'll practice and I'll get my shit together. Like October, it was like July. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was kind of it. Like that was the request. Later, um, I, you know, they'd never heard me play. And like, I remember Stone just being like, why? Like, what was going, he was just, I think, really in the best way, high on his own supply. Just like, he's like, I just helped form and, you know, the biggest man in the world. Yeah. And like, now I'm going to do like, I feel like like my artistic instincts are pretty good. And like, hello, Sean Smith and Regan, right? Like both incredible talents, you know? And he's just like, I feel pretty good about this. And Alex says Jeremy can play, even though Alex of his many guests, music is not one of them, you know? Right. And, and Alex, as it turns out, had never heard me play bass. We've <laughs> grown up together. And his whole thing was like, well, I know Jeremy. I love Jeremy. And I know he's like a grinder. Like if he's into something, I bet he's good at it. And he didn't tell those guys he hadn't heard me. And they were just like, so is Jeremy good? And he's like, yeah, he's great. <laughs> so that was kind of it. And um, sorry, the light keeps going in and out, but I guess audio here. So, um, you know. It became this great thing because it was like, as I was teaching speed reading, I was like, this is terrible. I hate this. And I'm like, I'd be like teaching these kids and they'd be like clunky junior high kids or whatever. I'd be like, yeah, so I, by the way, I'm going to make a record with the guy in Pearl in the fall. They'd be like, sure, teach. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Fuck you. Yeah. Um, and so that that was it. And literally... Um, I went up there and as it turns out, I don't even know if this was like an explanation that was made clear to me, but I was like, why me? I think that was part of the phone conversation. Like, why are you talking to me? And it was actually, and Stone was like, well, you know, there's a bass players in Seattle, but like, everybody's going to take it, make a big thing out of this, you know? And I just get a good vibe from you that you don't really, you're not really caught up in it. And I'm like, I'm not like, I mean, I get that you're in Pearl Jam and stuff, but like, not my thing like i love like it's cool but like yeah you know like i'm not tripping and so that was kind of the vibe and we got up there and yeah i mean i can go on but you know feel free to interrupt. 
So that's, no, no, that's, no, no, keep going. No, I love it. Um, so, uh, because Stone was in Pearl Jam, was it sort of like understood that he got whatever he wants to do as a side thing or a vanity thing is going to get released? Or was, did you go up there just as a, let's hang out and let's see what we can make out of this? Or, or was it pretty clear that this was going to come out? Yeah. So it wasn't clear that it was going to come out. It was clear that like, um, I don't know if it was communicated to me. I know he'd gotten like some demo money from Goldie, who was the Pearl Jam A&R guy. He'd gotten like something, or maybe he was even just floating it. Like, I don't even know what the initial deal was, but I know that like, I didn't have to worry about flying my butt up there. Like, right. like they were going to fly me up there. And I, but it was still super low key. Like I was going to crash at Alex's place. Um, and, uh, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, hey, rolling out the red carpet, you know. Um, and, yeah, so it wasn't clear. It wasn't even clear that we were making a record. It was more like what I was told is like, we're going to jam. And if it works out, we'll make a, we'll, we'll record some stuff. Um, and that was it. And But I knew that, like, I was like, I also was like, I sort of had my wits about me. I'm like, I don't need to take this too seriously, but, like. I'm going to Seattle to go jam with one of the guys in Pearl Jam. And I've never heard, I've heard Sean and Regan play. I've heard their other band. I know they're good. Like, and they've got a vibe. And I'm like, I'm definitely going to friggin' get my bass out and get my act together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I definitely was, I practiced hard for sure to get in, get ready for it. Like, and I even like was thinking about ideas. Like I, like, I was like, oh, this is a cool thing. I'll bring this in because I knew we were going to jam. I had no idea whether they wanted ideas, but I definitely had some things in my pocket. Um, so, so, uh, so you go there in October and I can, yeah. do you guys go out to dinner first and like, let's lay out the game plan or do you just show yeah. up in practice space and you just start playing or like, how, what is the initial get together? I don't quite frankly, I don't even remember. We all knew each other. Right. So it was like, it wasn't like, Hey, Jeremy, meet Sean, meet Regan. I think that it was basically like, I went up there, like I'm sure a plane ticket was bought for me. Mm -hmm. I went up there and I go to, I go to stay at Alex's house. I don't even know if Alex even picked me up from the airport because he was at that point building rock candy, Seattle. Um, I mean, Portland. I already okay. had to out of one. So he was going back and forth to Portland. So I think he was in Portland. There was another friend of ours, uh, this guy, Brett Marks, who's like related to the Marks brothers. Oh, wow. We all grew up on the same street in LA. He was up in Seattle working with, um, I cannot believe, like, I need to remember this guy's name. The guy who had, who was a, became a big, he was becoming a, he was like the video director in Seattle. Who, would, who directed Pearl Jam Alive, um, Josh Taft. Okay. Josh is around. He's become a big director as a bunch of super cool guy. Brett was working with Cowboy Films, I think they were called, making, and we were both living at Alex's place, just kind of like in this magical bubble of like Gold Rush Seattle, Grunge Seattle, kind of like meals paid for, hanging out. So I go there, and I think the first time I see the guys is literally in this basement in what's called Belltown area of Seattle. 
Uh, I don't know what Belltown is like now. Uh, I think the alligator lounge, alligator or crocodile. Alligator was LA. Crocodile was oh, yeah. crocodile is in that neighborhood. Um, lots of sort of like it's sort of one of those industrial neighborhoods of lofts and stuff um, that creatives were adopting. You know, this is sort of pre real estate boom in Seattle or as it's happening. So that stuff was cheap. And so it was like meet in this basement, which is Pearl Jam's rehearsal studio. And I'm like plugging into Jeff Ament's bass rig, you know, and okay, guys, let's go. And I don't know if the first thing we played, they already had Buttercup as a instrumental mm-hmm. thing that they were jamming on. That might have been the very first thing that we played. And it was like, they'd never played with a bass player on it. And it's just like, right away, like we tapped in together and it was, well, you could feel like, I'm kind of feeling it right now. Like, yeah. you could feel that we had a thing almost from like the first moment. Like the whole, and I couldn't tell you, I mean, with any honesty, what the chronology of things are. I mean, I have scattered memories of what went on from there, but it was like so clear that Regan and I had a vibe together. And it was so clear that Sean Smith was just in a space, like everything that he sang over whatever Stone brought in or I brought in was just like, holy shit. Like I brought in. Uh, the, that the bass riff for 20th century was, which isn't even a riff. It's me literally on the E string kind of muted, like, and like Regan dove into something and right away Stone is going, is I'm sure I'm slaughtering it, but, and like, Sean, like, right away is like, 20th century, my friends. And I'm like, what is this? This is a, and he's like, are you making fun of me? I'm like, no, that is like the dopest <laughs> shit I've ever heard. I'm making yeah. fun of you. That's amazing. I mean, stuff like that happened, like, so magically and in the moment. 20th century, my friends. like a week jamming and writing stuff i don't like with things like that i you know like i know that stone brought in nadine um i'm assuming that or whatever i'm not assuming people know this record but this is all oh stuff. yeah oh yeah 
So like, I know that that was like a guitar thing that Stone had. I don't know if they had previously worked on it, but it's like he would bring that in and I would bring in like um, this thing that we called Manic. I think it became um, My Fingers. That was like a Stone riff and like yeah. the song that became Ray's Love was like a bass riff that I brought in. This swinging kind of like so not something that I think would be in Seattle at that moment, but this kind of like, and like Regan just has these feels that he kicks into. And then it's like, Sean comes up with this epic kind of feelings of Alice in Chains chorus. Like this raise love. Everything happened like that, like instantaneous. Like, like I don't remember us like, sort of like thinking about it. There was some weed smoking going on. I might've been on some sort of Puritan, like mystic thing where I wasn't. I don't think I was. <laughs> there was copious amounts of weed going on. Yeah. And at the same time, like some really just like the vibe between us was instantaneous and deep. And like, you know, Stone was feeling very confident. I think everybody was tapping into that. And Sean and everybody have been working on their own stuff in their own ways and just like collided in this way that's like magical. It sounds like a cliche, but sometimes magic happens. And, and I've had that happen a few times in my music life. I feel completely blessed by those moments. Like it doesn't always happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that was one of them. And in a week we had all these songs. I can go on, but you can interrupt. Oh, no, no. I was so like, yeah, so so you had all the songs. Um, when did it become okay? Like we've got something here, and let, was it a pretty quick process? We got something here. Let's get it out because maybe it was like Stone on break from Pearl Jam, or or was it? Did it take a while to come out because Stone had Pearl Jam commitments, or what was the timing on the first record? So like, like I mean, so what happened from there? Like, do you want me to tell you about the recording at all, or just like I, I want to hear everything? Yeah, okay. yeah. So it's like I don't remember whether the recording was already booked or not. I don't know or whether it was like stone pretty quickly and was like, Oh, stuff's going on. Or, but like we, he booked time in a, at a vast, this recording studio called the vast, which I think, um, I should know this. I'm sure it was 24 track, but it wasn't like they had two machines for some reason. I think it was 16 track, but I think it was 24, but <laughs> maybe some early sound garden had been recorded there, okay. but like, there's definitely some other things that had come out of Avast. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really cool place, small studio. Um, and I'm forgetting what the neighborhood was like. So we, we jam for a week and then we go and it's like we record for like a week and a half. And record and mix. Paul basically write the whole record in a week record and mix it in a week half this is just like crazy in terms of yeah. every record like it's insane the kind of time and there are definitely some moments in there that were like and we're basically working all day there was like a little cafe next to our italian place where we would go and take a break eat dinner drink a little too much wine flirt with the super cute waitresses there um like i like we were all you know like sean and me like kind of Regan was with somebody already, but Sean and me were like single and kind of like 
also nerdy. Like <laughs> that was like a, a feature. I don't remember who those women were, but they were super cute. Um, <laughs> and then go back and work more. And it was just like, that was it. And like, I remember some things that were kind of, a, some things went down super quickly. Like I think Buttercup was like a take. I know it was a take. I don't know if it was the first take. Sean's vocal is what he sang while we were playing. I'm 90% sure. And there's lyrics in there that it's like, sometimes I don't even know if he was like, he, I know he wrote some stuff, but sometimes, you know, rest in power. He's not here to confirm or deny. Maybe Regan could, can weigh in and tell me like, Jeremy, you're like, you're on something. <laughs> but, um, but, so there was like things like that that happened. And then like Nadine, like I know we actually had to do a click and do it to a click. And it was a little bit of a struggle. Like Regan has amazing feel, but at the time he wasn't really like a click guy. And so like, we had a little struggle with that, but somehow in the end, it still feels great. Like <laughs> it's not on the click. Like if you put it up to a grid, not really going to work, but like somehow the wiggle work and like 20th century, this is early days of looping. There's like, they had to take, they were like, oh, we're going to do some, we're going to do some loops. So recorded Regan and then went over to Hart's studio, which is, I guess, London Bridge or London yeah. Bridge to construct the loop, brought the drum loop back. I think they looped Stone's guitar too. I'm pretty sure. No, maybe, no, they did not. Just looped the drums, came back. And I played my bass thing to it, did an overdub of some like sloppy stuff that, that comes in in different places where I'm actually playing some notes other than the doom to bam, ba doom to bam. And, you know, and then Sean did overdub his vocals there. And then like um, another sort of crucial moment, and then I'll like tell you about the mix really quick. These are just scattered memories is that uh -huh. down, I had written on this piano in, it was not like understood that I was going to bring songs in, but like I had written it on this piano at Alex's. Brett still remembers me writing it. And it had these totally obscure, weird Jeremy lyrics, but it was for me like a relative, like a song, like it had a chorus, like relatively straightforward song, like it had a chorus, right? Um, down, down, right? <laughs> and then some word poetry, low. <laughs> I, I would have to do research to remember what the words are. They're like fractured poetry stuff. Uh, and I did play it for them in the rehearsal, in the jams, and they were into it. And we recorded maybe to a click, like me playing the keyboard part and Regan put some stuff down and Sean, I think played some guitar and I don't remember if both him and Stone did. And I did like one vocal pass, right? And I'm barely a singer at this point. Like, I don't think, I had done some demos, but like, I'm really not like at all pro. Right. And I don't do one pass and it's not happening. And, sh and Stone is like, okay, just do it one more time. And I get the distinct vibe that like, if I don't sing it this time, this thing's not going to make it. But it, 
it wasn't a bad thing. And I just remember like singing it and they were like, great. And that was it. Wow. Um, and so it's like, there was kind of like tenuousness in it once we were actually recording. And then we sort of mixed it like in a couple days. This guy, I don't remember his full name, Stu, Stuart Holloman or something like that. It was the guy who owned Avast. He had been engineering or he had, um, no, the guy, there was a guy in the Pearl Jam camp and I'm, I feel terrible that I don't remember his name right now, but he had engineered and was mixing it. And we left with like mixes. Um, I'm, as I'm recalling this now, thinking that Stone actually floated this whole process. I don't think that Epic was involved at all. Yeah. Um, and because it wasn't that expensive. And, you know, Pearl Jam. Yeah, Pearl, Pearl Jam money. I mean, it's like crazy. Like, it's like the biggest band in the world at that yeah. moment. Uh, I leave Seattle to go back to LA and you know, at some point I got a call and he's like, um, you know, I played it for Goldie. Goldie's into it. We're going to do some overdubs. And we th we're thinking that this guy, Brendan O'Brien, who we like, is going to maybe do some mixes. And I'm like, cool. And the first thing that I get that I remember, I think the first two was like, we're probably Buttercup in 20th Century for some reason. and um they also had this guy Bashiri Johnson put some percussion on when Brendan started mixing so there's like he definitely added I mean Buttercup was what we did in Avast just the four of us in that moment 20th century there was some like percussion overdubs mm. and Sean did some like just a little bit farther like these classic Smith kid that guy I love and he's such a gene like yeah. these classic Smithisms, and when I heard that stuff, I was like, "Holy!" Like the demos were cool. Don't get me wrong, but everything had been done so quickly. And once Brendan brought his thing to it, I was like, "Wow!" Like this is really good. Like I just remember sitting in my tenement palace in Silver Lake. We lived in this place above a motorcycle shop next to this place called Los Globos, which became like. For a while recently, like a hipstery place where like alt bands play, but at the time yeah. it was disco, like totally legit Latin disco, like nobody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember listening to that in my place, like going like, we're, we're on to something. Like this is good. Um, there's more to say, but <laughs> so at some point does it become? Uh, a business deal do you have to come sign contracts and do you start talking about how you're going to split stuff up or was it more organic and just sort of like roll with what's happening at the time yeah so yeah so then it becomes like it goes from that that's all sort of the honeymoon amazing beautiful stuff all the mixes turn out amazing like um, i think the initial mixes were done just on a demo deal that goldie could float through and then like um, to finish the record and or put it out, it becomes like we got to do a real deal. We have like this dinner with this is Michael Goldstone. Goldie was his nickname. Okay. With Michael Goldstone, who I'd never met, Pearl Jam's AR guy. Also signed Rage Against the Machine. You might have heard of them. 
Uh, once or twice, yeah. Yeah. Kind of was, you know, making some awkward business decisions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think Pearl James' lawyer, this woman, Dana Cook, and we'd go have Thai food in L.A. And coming out of that dinner, it was like, okay, we're going to do a deal. Sean Smith is going to have to be committed to Epic because he's the singer. Um, but Regan and Sean, we're going to keep you guys kind of just like, you're going to be part of the deal. We'll all be quarter, quarter, quarter on everything. I'm like, great, but you're not going to be obligated to Epic because you're just like, you know, you don't need to be. And I was like, great. Um, and this is speaking out of turn a little bit, but like, whatever, like, I think it's worth it for people to know just because people still do record deals. Mm -hmm. Um, there came to be the, like, while this is happening, I'm starting to play out solo and do shows at this place called the Onyx. And I'm like, I'm like, like, wow, like I'm going to be a solo artist too. And, um, and I have like this really young manager this guy's not in the music business but super nice guy this guy named wayne comes and like the official contract comes through and i get called down to dana cook's office in westwood it's like the big corporate music attorney office i've got no attorney right and i'm just like told to sign this contract basically and i do and I'm kind of reading through it, and it's like there's things that don't make sense about it, but I sign it. And then I take it home and I look at it more and I talk to my manager. And I'm like, I think I'm committed to Epic. Like, like I don't think I'm supposed to be committed to them. Like, this doesn't seem. And it just became like this whole weird ass thing. And we went back. It's just like it got really, it got kind of screwed. She, took offense that I didn't want to sign it. Like, I don't know if Stone got on the phone or whatever, but like, I am getting my own attorney because it just didn't feel like, felt like she took offense that I just didn't want to sign this thing. Right. And who the hell am I? And I should be just friggin' happy to be aboard, which she actually may have had a point about. And I don't really know that like me being committed to Epic would have been the worst thing in the world. But, like, I felt like I shouldn't be, and I felt like it wasn't. We talked about a typhoon, and that's just kind of who I was at that time. Like, we talked about, and I kind of like it just kind of blew up in this really weird way where it was like she got pissed, she spread dirt about me in like the whole Pearl Jam management office about me being a pain. All I wanted it to be was the way it was, which eventually it got to be like they put in an exception for me and the Jeremy Toback Quartet. I think maybe I had a, or trio, I, maybe I had a group already or was starting a group that I had with like Nels Klein, who, you oh, know, now. Yeah. Amongst other things, like, like seriously, one of my favorite musicians ever. And this guy, Danny Frankel, like, like, so I got an exception for that in the contract, but it was like at this sort of cost and stone calling me like, can't we we need to go back to the spirit of where this was. And I'm like, dude, I kind of am, but I feel like it's getting misconstrued. And it sort of started a trend of there being, unfortunately, sort of like a division between and just sort of a view of who I was with the Pearl Jam camp that I think was 
you know, created by Dana Cook out of just like, I don't know what her trip was, like a power trip or whatever. And maybe she took, maybe I was just like a knucklehead. I don't know. At this point, I don't really hold any grudges. At the time, really unpleasant. So, so you sign it and the, the, I signed it. I got my exceptions. <laughs> so what was the, so were you back in LA working? Did you go back to speed reading? Like, did you have a job or was Epic, um, because of the contract, were you getting money for I got your apartment? some money and I'm sure, um, you know, and at that point, uh, at that point I'd already met, um, this one Fabienne who became, um, you know, we're now split, but we have, we've had, we're great friends and had a long history together, including our children. Um, I'd met her before all that was going on. So she sort of became involved and like, I did get some money. So I was probably living off of that. I think I also started writing through her. She was like, I started writing uh, coverage for scripts. I think that became my next sort of gig. So it's sort of a combination of things. Um, uh, and as that record was getting seated to be released, there was like real buzz around it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember getting a call from Regan, one of those sort of famous last word calls, like never say this to anybody, but he was like, labels freaking out in a good way like they love this record and like everything coming out of seattle was blowing up including things that were maybe not i'm not going to name names but i don't know that they were very good but like this record was cool i mean i feel like i can okay saying that just because like people oh, yeah. love it so much like um and he was like dude, they think it's, we're going to sell like millions of copies, like start shopping for property. And I'm sitting here like in my tenement and stuff like going like start shopping for property. Really? Like, and it feels like time gets compressed, but like before the record even gets released, like I'm listening to K-Rock, which is the most important station in the country at that point. Mm -hmm. And such a different environment than things are now. But like in that moment in time, I'm sure there were other stations, but I know that like if a song got on K-Rock and it did well on K-Rock, it was going to spread to the whole alternative world. Like they were mm -hmm. And this was not even planned to be one of the singles. Like we, did, we made videos with Josh Taft for Buttercup in 20th Century. So we'd made those videos, I think. we I think those were already planned to be the singles. And this guy, Zeke Pistrup, at K-Rock, had apparently gotten a hold of the you know pre-release CD or whatever. And I didn't know how this had happened at the time, but like I'm listening completely unaware that this is going to happen, and suddenly I hear scream, come on. And it sounds amazing. And the big na-na-na outro and whatever, I'm just like, I get on the phone and call up K-Rock before the song is over. And I'm just like talking to everyone on the phone. I'm like, hi, this is Jeremy Toback. You guys are playing the song of the band that I'm in right now. <laughs> you know, and they're like, really? And they put me on the radio <laughs> with Richard Blade live after the song goes, I don't remember what the heck we talked about. Yeah. Whatever. 
stuff like that is going on. We're like in Rolling Stone um, in some like, like a picture that Lance Mercer had taken of us at Avast and we're in Rolling Stone. And I don't even know if I knew it and I get like a call from my sister or something and she's like in the Mark Morris dance troupe at the time and the gut, one of the guys in the band is a rock fan. And he's like, yo, that's Toback's sister. And I get a call to find out that I'm in Rolling Stone. Stuff like that is going on. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, before actually even I think the singles get released, it gets killed. And there's another shadow side. You want to hear that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I obviously being a Columbus, Ohio resident and yeah, tell me, Jam, yeah, tell me. no, and being a Pearl Jam fan, like I can't remember how I heard about the record. I'm not sure that you know the buzz had made it to Columbus, but maybe it had. I don't know. But I, I remember buying it at World Record, which was the second floor record store. I bought it on release day, so I definitely remember buying it. But um, but yeah, my memory of it, I think what you're about to say is that like it didn't it didn't do those million copy sold yeah. maybe like the yeah. promotion wasn't up or i and, and you can answer this for me like i don't remember if it was being sold as stone's band or whether stone's name wasn't prominent i i, I don't remember the release i just i remember buying it but i don't remember anything about the surrounding parts of it so and i'm just gonna light some incense here sadly yeah. that whole thing the reason for that is intentional and it's not particularly cool <laughs> And it's one of those just like, I get why it went down. And I even, you know, I don't even um, hold the people who are responsible. Like for a time, like I really, it was just so heartbreaking. And I thought, what happened basically is everything that was going on, like it was set to explode. Mm -hmm. They were playing, K-Rock was playing a song that wasn't even one of the singles. And it sounded great. Like people, like it was just had the vibe, even though it was a weird record. Like, I don't think it was completely in step, but it was like in that moment in time, something that was not, I mean, Sean was not singing the way that, you know, Lane from Alice sang or Eddie or Chris Cornell, like who all were different singers, but also had like a sort of like really big, sort of bravado saying Sean is like delicate yeah, you know, and kind of like, like this sort of vapory broken hearted kind of R and B thing. It's like a different vibe. And yet, you know, the guitars are there, but it's not like friggin' metal with a groove. It's like, no, it's coming out of some funky stuff. Right. Anyway, like it just had a vibe where it was going to go. And I know that, I mean, whatever, it's like, it looked like it was going to. What happened is, is that Stone had not really communicated to his other band members that this was happening. And I think that there was a feeling in the Pearl Jam camp, I'm not going to get in specifics, that it was like, whoa, we're overexposed. This is like, we're already, like, we need to go away for a minute and figure out what we're going to be next. And and, you know, they had all those sort of, like, conflicts about, like, which is sort of crazy to think about. Like, old rock stars were like, we're going to be rock stars, yo. But the grunge thing was definitely, and this is kind of, I think, coming out of Kurt, mm -hmm. like, the conflict of being like, well, like, we don't want to be a part of this thing. We're, we're singing about, like, not being 
part of the machine or part of like the anti-rock star thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think those things, I think there's also some hypocrisy in there, like some internal, like whatever, but it doesn't matter that was going on, right? So, so the shorter version of it is that both, I think, coming from the band on some level and from like definitely from the label and management, there was like tension about this record that was going to come out and that there was a lot of hype about and like not wanting it to be seen as sort of like riding on Pearl Jam's coattails, even though it was legit its own thing. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and so the record was killed. Uh, and my people will dispute this, but I don't care. It's true. <laughs> like, there was definitely a word that went down to places like K-Rock, like, don't play this record. Yeah. And I have dear friends who I will not name who are in the business at the time and add up at the time who previously told me, like, that never happened, Jeremy. And I think they're just protecting the good name of other people involved. And yeah. I don't mean to trash people, but, like, sometimes bad, people do bad things and people who otherwise do noteworthy things you know, do things that, that hurt other people. And it happens in reality. And, and that happened in this case, because, I mean, I think Sean in some ways was the person most hurt by it. Um, because like him and Regan would have been minted. Mm -hmm. I would have been in my own way. Like we would have been minted as like legit artists who, who artist artists who actually have an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, and that didn't happen. And, and that definitely, like, it happened intentionally. And so it's just like, sometimes that shit happens, yo. <laughs> it, uh, it is. I mean, and, and that's why, like, I enjoy, I mean, it's not a great story for you to have to tell, but I enjoy hearing these stories because, you know, from a music fan's perspective, who's listening right. to K-Rock or watching 120 Minutes, things look one way, but there's stuff behind the scenes that we never yeah. know. Um, I'm trying to think offhand can't think of a great example um the only example i can think of is a butthole surfers um mm. i got a i got an advanced cassette of one of the records yeah that i believe never came out and i don't know the story behind that but it was like capital sent it out and then didn't right. release it and again i don't know that's so long ago i don't remember the story but right. it makes you know that it makes you realize that there was stuff happening it's all about it goes from that organic you guys jamming in a room and feeling the vibe to business gets right. involved and the money gets involved and yeah. the conflicts and the relationships and what happens. And that's the yeah. unfortunately ugly side of, of any job, like whether you're an athlete or a musician, but there's, if somebody is going to stand to lose some money or something that, that might be some of the root of, of the evil here in that, um, right. because, you know, like I said, I don't have strong memories of that time period. I remember buying the CD, but also remembering like not necessarily my friends didn't know what it was or didn't know who it was and having to introduce people to it. And then, no, this is a guy, this is Pearl Jam. This is a Pearl Jam right. thing. And to, like you said, like, I remember, I, I, I don't remember listening to it for the first time, but if I can guess what I was thinking, the guess was that like, this doesn't sound like Eddie, to your point, this doesn't sound like Eddie Vedder. What is this thing going on? Like, I don't get it. Oh, oh interesting. That's not, cool. not that I didn't get it, but it wasn't what it, it wasn't Pearl Jam. It wasn't Soundgarden, but it had Pearl right. Jam's name on it, but it doesn't sound like a Pearl Jam record. So then I had to like discover. So what is this thing? And, and, right. and I love it. I mean, I, I'm, 
it might have been a little bit pre-writing career for me, but like, um, I mean, I, I on board with Brad and Satchel like uh-huh. pretty early on that it was just, yeah, it was, there was special music being made by you guys. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the beautiful thing is that the record was good enough and they did put it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like a deal was struck. Right. So the record got put out. It didn't get shelved, which is wonderful. And people did find it. Like it became a cult record (laughs) and people fell in love with it. And, um, you know, and Sean and Regan were able to go make Satchel records. I think that was sort of part of, part of the thing. And like, you know, um, God, I'm wondering, you know, like the record did get like another sort of release just sort of after the fact, you know, it's just like the good thing is like it did get into the world and people found it and it was strong enough that people did fall in love with it. And, you know, sometimes you just like, sometimes that's just people's fate. I mean, I really, you know, I, I kind of do believe in that. I do like believe in karma and like, Mm -hmm. and that sometimes like, it's just, it's just what's supposed to happen. And it's for whatever reason, some things, you know, it's like Nick Drake. Drake makes three of arguably the most brilliant records of all time. I'll say two of them. And Brighter Later, I think, has brilliant moments on it, but whatever. They're amazing records. And people knew they were amazing records who made it, but nobody bought them. Mm-hmm. One pub tour and bombed and hated it, went back to his parents' house and like died of depression, essentially. Mm-hmm. And now he's probably one of the most influential. He's the progenitor of an entire movement of music, indie folk, which Renee and Jeremy, we can talk about that later, is part mm-hmm. of. You know? And it's because of a Volkswagen ad and digital and streaming, because those records could never, you know, stuff is just, it's, it's inexplicable. Why wasn't he as big as Cat Stevens? I don't know. You know, I would, I would say that, um, that while the album, like you said, was killed and it didn't get the promotion in it, um, maybe I live in my own little bubble, but I feel like the Brad record is something that, you know, the whole point of the dig me out podcast is digging out stuff that people don't know. I I would argue that Brad is still a a known quantity, a known commodity, uh, that people know, like people are still talking about Brad. So it wasn't a one and done or you were buried. It just didn't, right. what you expected it to, or maybe had hoped it would do, but, um, but it's still being talked about, I think, uh, in part because Sean is so prolific and people just yeah. fall in love with Sean that it, it wasn't just a fade away kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And that's like sort of, to me, the beauty of, I'm actually kind of a fan of the, I mean, listen, I love vinyl. There's great things about the way the music business used to be and the way music used to be, but there's also things that are amazing about the way it is now. Mm -hmm. One of the amazing things is that music that maybe didn't hit in a certain way, like Brad records would be hard to keep in print in the old model. Right. And not hard to have digitally distributed globally living at this point as long as streaming lives right mm-hmm. everywhere for people to find and to share on playlists and it's beautiful like that's to me is a beautiful thing as an artist and as a lit fan i mean 
I discovered things like the singer of the zombies, Colin Blunstone, has an amazing solo record. Um, might be called Misty Roses that I discovered. I discovered. I didn't discover it. It's been around forever, but I didn't know about it. And I'm a total fan of broke folk like yeah. Nick Drake and Tim Harden and all that stuff from the late six. I didn't know about it until like it was recommended to me by Spotify. And then I reached out to all my broke folk fans. I was like, how do I not know about this? And they're like, how do you not know about this, Jeremy? So it's like circling back to Brad. It's like to me, it's amazing that like it's like people get to have that experience and somebody, some kid is gonna find Buttercup in like the Philippines and they're going to be like this breaks my heart that's so beautiful it's just a matter of time it's just a matter of time it's just a matter You know, I think we make up our own memories. And so, like, I don't know if this is actually in the Wilco documentary. Uh-huh. I remember being in it, but I don't know if it's in it. But um, David Frick, right, from Rolling Stone? Yeah. That's his name. You know who I'm talking about? I know the name for sure, yeah. I'm sure I've read his stuff, yeah. Um, I swear I remember him saying this. And again, I could be making this up, but I swear I remember him saying, because it was about the Wilco album that got shelved and the label deal and it took forever to come out. And he made some comment like that labels are so invested in the money part of it and the promotion cycle. And it has to come out this day and you got to get a placement on K-Rock or in Rolling Stone within a week right. of it coming out. And he, he made some comment like, there is a kid today who has never heard the Beatles, who is picking up a Beatles record for the first time. And for them, it's opening these doors and we're talking 60 years later, and there's always going to be records that somebody, did, and I think digital has helped that even further. Like back in the CD days, you'd still have to hunt it and find it. But now there is a kid listening to a Beatles record for the first time, right as we're talking right now, whose mind is being blown. And they're about to go on this discovery that you would have never imagined 60 years ago. Or, yeah, about six, yeah. I mean, to me, that's like, you know, I mean, whatever it's sort of a guilty pleasure but almost famous like it's like you know um there's the scene at the end where it's like so what do you love about music and he's like well to start with everything yeah and it's like there were a lot of years where i didn't feel that way and it's like i feel so much that and i love that part of of to me that's what the, what's amazing about um the way music is now that it's so accessible to people that people get to have that experience yeah so, you know, there's a whole lot of Brad stuff we could talk about, but I yeah, want to yeah, talk, yeah. But, yeah. I, but I want to talk about your solo stuff because that's how <laughs> I, I was a Brad fan. That's how I discovered your solo stuff. And yeah. I know that I've written this before and I'm, I probably emailed this to you at some point, but my interpretation of Jeremy Toback's solo music was <laughs> that, that I was, I was a huge fan right from the get go. But my, my memory of it was that like Dave Matthews was starting to take off. 
And uh-huh. I always thought of if Dave Matthews is the college bartender who is a Grateful Dead fan and kind of making music for the that kind of crowd, that you were like the coffee house poet who was working at the coffee shop. But but I but in my mind, my friends who like mainstream and were Dave Matthews fans, I always try to turn them on to you because I don't think at all you're the same or similar. But right. you're both like these solo artists who are creating great music. Yours was much more um uh um, I don't know the word I'm looking for. Philosophical, more right. uh, highbrow, and more Ivy League than, <laughs> than than Dave Matthews stuff was. But all my friends, I I I don't know how many in the '90s, how many people I tried to turn on to your music by saying there's some there's there's a there's something a connection between the two, and I can't tell you what it is. But um, it's funny. Do you know that we were signed by the same guy? No. I mean, Maybe. it's really funny that you mentioned Dave because it's like. Really? I'm Talk about Dave here for a second. Yeah. Um, it's because it's wild because everything you said there is so true that we are like, I would used to say like, Dave and I like listen to a lot of the same records, but like different aspects of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not the same at all. And there is this connection and there's an explicit connection. We were signed by Bruce Florid, RCA Records. Dave was signed first under the table and dreaming came out right around the time I was signing to RCA. Um, And on the dark side of things, I was negatively impacted by Dave Matthews present on RCA because they would sometimes not do things because they're the Dave Matthews band, you can't do everything. And entities like radio stations would punish RCA by punishing me. Because they're like, well, we can't punch, we're not gonna not play Dave because it's Dave Matthews, but we're not gonna play Jeremy. It was that piece. And he's a friggin' awesome guy. Um, and I remember seeing him play Crash for the first time. It's like a, a club show for RCA and talking to the guys at RCA being like, that's the single. And they're like, you're on crack, Jeremy. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and they're like, first of all, we're not listening to you. What do you know about singles? You're our like crazy art rock signee. And I'm like, because I listened to the freaking monkeys growing up and I'm telling you, Crash is. Yeah. I don't, actually, I don't know shit about most things, but I was right about that. <laughs> it's funny. Like, um, you get crashed, Jeremy, we'll break you. Here's the other thing about Dave. I texted him the other day and he got my rabbi, dear friend, like primo boxy, the Hollywood Bowl. That's the kind of dude that Dave, like, he's like, either night, shall I say, you know, Mr. Toback, <laughs> you know, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, in, in a sense, it's similar, uh, in Columbus, when I started college, it was a band that had already been established and they were signed to Sire Records, uh, called the Royal Crescent Mob. Totally know that band. Do you know them? Yeah. I'm sure I bought one of their records. Funk band. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I yeah. think, and again, these are late teen, early 20 memories. So I could be wrong, but it feels to me like the Chili Peppers got signed at the same time to Warner Brothers, a parent company. And to your point, it was kind of like, so we can put our eggs in one funk rock band. And do we put it in the Chili Peppers or do we put it in Royal Crescent Mob? And they put it in the Chili Peppers and Royal Crescent Mob. Yeah. But you probably knew Royal Crescent Mob that, do you know why I'm going to say this? The connection that you, so it's not a great connection. Um, but the bass player for Royal Crescent Mob was Happy Chichester. Oh, that is why I know their name, yeah. but I also had their record separately. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. And then he, 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 out of that came, he had a band, Howl and Maggie and right. still a great guy. Still lives in Columbus. Um, it's crazy. 
like I toured the only Brad tour I did later, which is sort of after the gold year. Happy was like our, um, was doing a solo set and sort of like our, you know, guy who would do like, they've played different instruments. I didn't even know that Happy was a bass player because the bass, because, because Royal Crescent Mob was like, yeah, some stuff. That's funny. Yeah. In fact, they've had, they've had, they've had a little bit of a, uh, I mean, they broke up in 94 and have never played a reunion show or anything. Um, I believe the drummer might have incurable cancer and the singer has gone through prostate cancer. They're, they're reuniting uh, in a month from now to play their first show since 1994. And I think it's all the money's going towards cancer research and stuff. But wow. So it's a sad reason for a reunion, but it's pretty special, the fact that they haven't played since 1994. Are you going to be with them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Hey, happy. <laughs> yeah. The uh, um, uh, the singer went on to become a, a tour manager, and he might even still be a tour manager for like Alanis Morissette and Jewel, wow. and he's he's taken that path to his right. career. But um, right. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to your solo stuff. So oh, Dave yeah, Matthews. Yeah. 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 So um, uh, RCA Records put it yes. out. Um, expectations for you when you saw like were they promising you a lot of stuff, or was it kind of like let's let's push you out and see how it goes or what was uh the vibe I mean, for that? like i mean god bless bless bruce floor for signing me first of all like um uh you know they you know the reality is is that like i don't think any like that was a time where people were signing things and they didn't really know necessarily what it was that they were signing they just didn't they knew that still knew for for a period of time there what hadn't gone like completely like vertical horizon or like what all that sort of pop mm-hmm. alternative shit like they still were just signing shit that they were like well maybe this will work and i think i fell in that category especially and i had the brad association so it was kind of like as my lawyer said he's got blue blood like i had this cool reputation even though i was making like i got signed playing solo bass at this place called the mint in la like literally no band just playing solo bass and I don't think Bruce really knew what I was about musically. I just think he knew that it was cool. And I had this EP that I had made with this friend of mine, Brad Kaplan, I knew from high school, who invested creatively and financially in it. And Nels Klein is on it. And this guy, G.E. Stinson, who had been the guitar player in Shadowfax. I don't remember if this new, this new age band, like a cool new age band. It was on Wyndham Hill, but like kind of coming out of jazz fusion ambient, like mm. not like cheesy. Um, and they were part of the LA avant improvised scene. And so those guys, like I, you know, came out of that sort of spirit that I told you I was in when I was mm-hmm. getting into Brad. And we made this really dope demo. Um, Chad Fisher, who you spoke to previously. Yeah. Uh, help bring word behind words from kind of like a solo we recorded that solo bass i don't think with a click and brought it into chad and he put drums on it miraculously and it became weirdly and any any i think he put the he put this guitar down also that turned this thing that was like a dark horse on the demo into this beautiful ambient kind of epic you know single sort of art rocky single thing um 
So we had that and it was very, I love that EP. It's one of the favorite things that I've ever been a part of. Um, this guy, Gabriel Moffat, recorded it and mixed it. It was very homespun us, even though there's some super ringers mm-hmm. on it. Um, and people who've gone on, like Nels Klein was not, he was a genius. Both yeah. those guys were geniuses, but it's not like they were like, like, it's not like you were going in to make a record and people were like, let's get Nels Klein to play on this stuff. Like, yeah. it's like literally working at an art bookshop in LA and playing crazy improv shit. He was not known even like just maybe starting to get inroads into like the Sonic Youth people and eventually the people that would eventually realize that this was like a crazy jazz dude who could play, who loved rock music. Um, But I don't think our, I know RCA did not know what to do with it. And they were like, we're going to do a deal with Cherry Desk and do a fake indie deal and put it out and just let it go. We're not going to promote it. And another one of these crazy, another one of these things happened where Zeke, the guy who I mentioned to you, who was responsible for the Brad thing, getting into Richard Blade's hand, then getting, he wasn't responsible for getting killed. He, I don't know if we'd become friends or it was just like, he got a hold of my EP and got word behind words. Um, A couple things happened. Mimi Chen at this alt station in LA started playing um, this remix that we did of less I say that was kind of like had beats to it Mm. so that was going on on the sort of like triple a thing and then but more importantly k-rock started playing word behind words um, while we were making I believe while we were making perfect flux thing but they were playing the ep version of it Mm. and rca's whole trip was like and bruce's trip and god bless his soul was like well that's the art version we're gonna put big guitars on this that'll be the hit but i was like this like and i just didn't have the wherewithal like i didn't know right something you just don't know um and and rca did not put their might behind what was happening organic and it was a mistake because the EP, and also I had made mistakes. Like I, rather than going with Brad to make my first RCA record, like we had like a falling out over stuff that was really like some stuff he had done, but me just overreacting, like somebody doesn't know what the hell they're doing. And my lawyer had given me good advice. was like, whatever, Jeremy, you guys have a special creative thing, work it out. And I should have taken that advice. And I made perfect boxing with this guy, Craig Street, who produced Cassandra Wilson. And there's amazing people on that who I'm glad that I met, like uh, Melvin Gibbs, who's the bass player of Rollins Band. Oh, yeah. Out of Avant New York stuff. And this guy, Dougie Bound, who's like incredible drummer. And Ivan Julian, who was in the Voidoids, Richard Hell, like super legendary New York dudes, but also like, and all people who I love, and there's good things about it, but the, the vibe on the EP was unquestionably really more me mm-hmm. or where I was coming from. And it's just like one of those things where, you know, could have, should have, would have, but like didn't have the sense to do it. And there were mistakes that I made and mistakes that RCA made and that we just didn't take advantage of, I think, what was really an important piece of work that could have become where I went 
and it went a different direction and you know became a mixed bag i mean like rca to their credit and bruce's credit like they did try and take a big swing but perfect flux thing was just not which is the record after the ep right like it just like the singles that we later sort of tried to put on it which were california phase and perfect flux thing were not like amazing they were okay-ish and the things that are beautiful on that record are like the really obscure ballads and there was no song that was like the word behind words ep version that was the thing that could plus everything was cha- had changed yeah by the time that came out in 97 like the stuff i was talking about was already like christina aguilera was coming out and on the rock side, it was our, we were already into like, I can't even, like I opened for tonic and I like those guys too, but like, this is not like, this is backwards hat music uh, already. Yeah. Like what yeah. I call that hat music. Like it's already like frat music. And I'm not even like, that's awesome. Folks got to like rock out to that shit. I got no problem with it. It's just not me. Um, and so this whole combination of things happened. And like, you know, they put me on Lollapalooza, right? And I was on the second stage bombing every fucking day. Like, because the music was weird. And it's like on the corners, like I literally would play two songs with my band and like over then like, and I'd have like a like good audience and like over the hill at this amphitheater I'd hear, boom, 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 boom. And literally there'd be a sea of flannel running away from me. And there'd be like two pimply haired, you know, dudes, pimple, pimple, you know, like greasy haired dudes and like a riot girl left. And the sea of, while the sea of flannel walked up and it was like every day on all the pieces that was. It was heartbreaking. And that that was after, that was the, um, uh, um, another truth. Another true fiction? That's the name of the record? That's no, that's perfect. That was like perfect flexing. I'm, I'm kind of that was oh. the first official RCA record. Right. But I mean the Wallapalooza thing was that Wallapalooza was perfect flexing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like so I was just sort of saying that RCA did really try to push that in their mm-hmm. own way. I mean there were people, but there was nothing really to hang on to radio. And like they did send me out there with tour support, you know, like to be, you know, and I also did some boneheaded. Like I made some bone. Like Brad's second record was coming out at that time. Like we did um, Interiors, which I sang a song on, and I don't think Interiors is anywhere near Shame. I think Shame, like whatever, like a beautiful special record. And there's wonderful things on Interiors. Like I think Day Brings is, yeah, break down the whole record, but Day Brings is a great Sean Smith song, and I do like Circle and Line as me, a me song mm-hmm. playing bass and John's harmonies are dope. Uh, but there's like a weird thing where it's like, those guys wanted to go on tour and I was stubborn about the way that they wanted me to go on tour. Cause I had my own band and my own solo thing. And we had, a, they offered sort of a compromise version, which I should have taken, but I was just like really hard headed and stupid, quite frankly. Like yeah. I should have, you know, it's like, we don't need to get into the details, but it's like shit like that when you're young and you're maybe have emotional baggage, you don't know what the hell you're doing. So it's like, there are ways that I shot myself in the foot that I could have made it much easier for, for RCA. Like me opening up solo, which is what they wanted me to do for Brad on Brad's dime, 
where we are going playing for an existing audience that Epic doesn't even have to pay for because we're going to sell out club shows and the club and the Brad tour is going to have vibe because quite frankly, and God bless Mike Burke, who's awesome and can play and is a great dude, but it's like just a different story if like the guy who's in the band and who wrote the song and we get to play Circle in Line, which people like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just, and I was just stupid, quite frankly. And my apologies to Regan and, sh- you know, everybody's good now, but it's like at the time you think you're doing the righteous thing and you're just being enough on it. Yeah. Does, uh, you know, like I said, the, the podcast covers a lot of those like late nineties bands you're talking about that. Um, and, and we like, I, I, I am a guest sometimes, but they always talk about different years and yeah. just how by the end of the nineties, it was boy bands and it was corn and it was tonic and vertical horizon, those kind of yeah. bands. It's impossible to answer this question probably, but I'm going to ask you to try. Do you yeah. think if you were that age and put in a, a record today, you'd have a lot more opportunities? Wait, if I was... If you were, when Perfect Flux then came out, if, that, yeah. if, if you were that age and that record came out today, do you think your opportunities would have been better because you weren't competing against a boy band? And the, the, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, listen... We've talked about ways that, like, even even within the thing, there are ways that I clearly fucked up my own thing um, that I think I would have had a different trajectory, even given the stuff that you're talking about. Sure. Like, um, and there were people that I think about that were coming up at that time, even though he's a very different artist, like Ben Harper, who's a guy yeah. like, I don't know him these days, but we knew each other back in the day. And that was a guy who just, him and JP is Matt, JP, I, don't pronounce his right name right but it was his manager at the time like they just had their heads on straight about where to fight and where not to fight mm-hmm. and where to make a stand and where not to make a stand and those things are so important and they allow real artists sometimes which ben is right to move through a situation that's not ideal he also had other things going from i think virgin really had his back in a way that rca didn't have my back but even in that so there's that piece but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think the environment now is better. Mm-hmm. I think that there's other things about it that are more challenging, though, which is like there's so many, like you have to be a self-starter. So it's yeah. like, um, how do you get your audience? You know, I mean, it's sort of proven itself out in that, like, Renee and Jeremy, we made these records with no label and, like, um, admittedly, starting in a different sort of segment starting as making sort of like whatever nick drake elliott smith influenced records for children right Mm -hmm. families but like we have like a crazy legit career with no label right we make money now i don't make live in la money like i have to do some other thing but like we have 200 million streams like it blows my mind like on Spotify, like there's a hundred thousand people listening to us on Spotify alone every month. Who are these people? Right. What? You know, and that can happen, right? Yeah. It doesn't happen for everybody. Like I know a lot of people who are like amazing. Some of my heroes who came around in the nineties, who I'm like, this guy is like a genius and doesn't have what Renee and Jeremy has. And that's weird timing stuff. And like, maybe stuff will get rediscovered. Brad doesn't have what Renee and Jeremy have. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, it's building. I think people are, and maybe it will build and get bigger. It deserves, you know, its yeah. own thing. But so it's really hard to say. There's some, I mean, I know that knowing what I know now, now is a much better time for me because it's like I've worked through a lot of the ways I used to shoot, shoot myself in the foot and I don't do that. Um, I, I talked to um, Adam Elk from the Mommy Heads. Uh, and um, like in not seriousness, but we sort of were talking back and forth, joking as as musicians that like you, and again, this is like not serious and not feasible, but you know, he was mentioning that like what you just said, if he knew now what he knew then he probably wouldn't have even started his career until he was 40 because now he's gotten all that dumb kid stuff out of the way and now he's doing it because he enjoys doing it he's not worrying about record deals or sales he's, right. he's doing what he wants to do um yeah. he's not yeah. discounting his his 20 year past but he's kind of like i wish i had this i wish i knew this stuff then because it would be different yeah i mean yeah, I mean, for me, like, I get, I totally get that. And at the same time, like, it's like the artist that I am now is so informed by how heartbroken I was by that whole experience. Sure. Like, it deepens what I say artistically. Like, I'm able to express things because I've been completely broken and felt like everybody abandoned me. And I had that inflated ego to make those stupid mistakes and then to have that broken and sh be shattered literally i talk about crying on the side of the road literally on tour just like god why have has thou forsaken me but once you have that experience you know and it's not like you have to suffer to make good art i don't know but you have i think poets need to have their hearts broken on a certain level because then how do you speak for i don't know how you speak for the heartbroken hearted i don't yeah. know how you do it unless your heart's been broken yeah um, and furthermore, I mean, some people speak from the broken heart completely. I mean, I think that's sort of a Nick Drake thing. And like, I'm having a different experience. I'm speaking from a broken heart that I've learned how to mend. And I can share that through music. And that's part of what Renee and Jeremy is about. It's part of what my new solo music is about. And it's like, so it's like I treasure, like for me, those things were not fun to live through. I mean, I was dropped three days before my first son was born. Like nobody, Miles, Aaron Toback, who's now 21. Um, nobody wants that, right. right? Nobody wants to have, to go to lunch and have your, you know, like agent, like, like take you out to the eye. We go like, hey, by the way, I'm dropping you. <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just what, an individual supposed to go through, I know it's just like, what do you take of it? What do you make of it? So, I mean, I weirdly, like I'm super grateful for it. I've never been more excited about music and that's just the way it is for me. And I can see how for other people, it's not that way. I mean, like, you know, the world is not always, it's mysterious, you know, it's yeah. like, sometimes you're just like, why is that person, you know, I feel grateful for what's happened to me that like Renee and Jeremy's big enough that, that I make money from it and that it gives me freedom and the confidence to do stuff. Um, and at the same time, I look at other people and like, they're not having the same experience and like, you know, I don't even know if I want to mention, I will give them a shout out because like, like Mark Geitzel mm -hmm. and American music club, like huge influences on me. And Mark, I think, and I know him, I haven't seen him 
in several years, but like I've met him and we sort of stay in touch a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think he's like just like a genius. And like his music hasn't had that rediscovery moment. I hope it will. Um, because some of like of those AMC songs, I mean, even stuff after their heyday, the song Patriot's Heart is like, go listen to that song. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. It's top hundred song for me, you know, ever. I don't know exactly the connection, but he's he's got a Columbus connection as well. I think he started a band here maybe when he was in college or something. Or Because American Music Club is coming out of like San Francisco. Yeah. And the whole Red House Painter San Francisco scene. I'm going to look it up because I want to go. But that's a, by the way, AMC is, is like that is one of those bands that I think got caught up in the 90s dynamic that we're talking about. Like they got the deal. They got like the Warner Brothers deal and made like a crazy genius record with you should cover this record. I would be so touched if you would. I think Mercury is a perfect record on the level of like, you know, records that are, that have like those talk, talk records that got them dropped. That Radiohead would not exist without like Mercury, which is produced by Mitchell Froome, Chad Blake, at their peak, the weirdest sounding, craziest record. Mark is at his songwriting peak. It is beautiful top to bottom. The secret track on it, Will You Find Me, is heartbreaking and gorgeous. And nobody knows that record. And it's just like, because it was too weird. And like, and, and by the time that came out, like, it was like, where does it go? You know, like, it just wasn't. The thing, and, and it wasn't even in step with the other alternate. It wasn't the Toadies, who were great, right. ever in their own way. But, you know, it wasn't, and it wasn't Weezer. It wasn't like, just was like, not that. Yes. And then on the other hand, you've got like, Red House Painters become Sun, Sun Kill Moon. And that guy somehow navigates it. I'm not going to pronounce his name right. Mark. Mark Ko- Kozelik or Kozelik or. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. And that guy navigates it and has a great career. Grump, he's a grump. Yes. Mark, uh, Mark Eitzel lived in Columbus when he was 19. Oh. He released one single in 1980. His second band was called the Naked Skinnies. They released a single in 81. He then moved to San Francisco with the Naked Skinnies. They disbanded in 82 and he formed American Music Club right after that. So I saw AMC very early playing with this friend of mine's band called Pop Art 80s thing. And I remember not liking them when I saw them live. And then when Everclear came out, I was this is the shit. Yeah. Um, Sorry to go on a 90s tangent. That's what this is all about. And so uh, I want to talk to you about the last 22 years, and you've talked about Renee and Jeremy, but first I want to do, so um, I love that you've been name dropping. And I loved when I was talking to Chad Fisher and he mentioned your name and I'm like, I know that guy. That's crazy. Tell me some of the other names from, like, I think I may have sent you a message that I got to meet some folks in Nancy Wilson's band. Right. And they were guys who played on your record. And when I told them that, they were like, uh, uh, maybe it was one guy. It was a like Chris Joyner. And I, and I, right? Yeah. And I was, and I was, they did an in-store autograph thing. And I went down the line and I'm like, and I rec, the way that I recognized your name in that record store, buying your EP because you were in Brad, I was yeah. like, did you play with Jeremy Toback? And he was like, how did you know that? Like I caught him off guard. Um, wow. 
So tell me some other names of people who have done some other things that maybe that I've, been, that I've been associated with or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, uh, like did you did you play on anybody else's records in the '90s that like I didn't like? Like I said, when when Chad mentioned your name and that he he played on your record, maybe or he. Yeah. So like, yeah, he was instrumental in word behind words. We also, Chad and I also wrote, I don't love this song. Like my attempt to like make a single that would fit in with the Eve sixes of the world or whatever uh-huh. you make me feel. And it was kind of a hit. Oh yeah. I remember that. Tampa. You know, kind of Google dolls, whatever. Yeah. Like it's not my vibe, but like Chad and I co-wrote that song. Um, and, and, and his name is on the credits, right? Oh yeah, he's credit. Yeah, he's credit. Like, so that's the thing. I mean, I had that record. I mean, I still have the CD. Um, I knew School of Fish, but I didn't until he mentioned it, and I went back. I'm like, oh my gosh, your name is here. So, like, did you play on anybody else's records or any other people playing? Like, like I didn't really, you know, like Mark Stewart from Negro Problem, a little obscure. He co-wrote Blood White Gold with me, which was on uh, Perfect Flex thing. you know, I co-wrote with a bunch of people on another true fiction, like weird people, like Jeff Trott, who who, who co-wrote all of Cheryl Crow's big hits. Oh wow! If it makes you happy, who was in Wire? Uh, he was in Wire Train, and then he was in uh, World Party. Oh wow! So Jeff and Jeff is still like a you know like great writer, super cool dude. We wrote Will I Find uh, Will I Find You Together. Um, so there's more stuff like that. Um, like I just wasn't, it's weird. Like I didn't get, I don't feel like I got, I got calls like from some local people to play bass, but I wasn't really like a studio kind of bass player. Like I was really good at a certain point, but like, but I was like, in that way, Regan and I are pretty similar. Like Regan's not like a studio drummer. He's a Regan Hagar (laughs) drummer, you know, like, Joel, who plays on my solo stuff and co-produces my new solo stuff, Joel Graves. So I wanted to bring him up too. Yeah. Okay. So like, he's a guy like who I've been like I know him through Brad. He was a huge Brad fan, um, and I met him on the road when I was on the road with Brad on that one tour that I went with with Brad. Just unfortunately, after the fact, Welcome to Discovery Park, a record I don't really like. Mm-hmm. And I met him on the road. But uh, what was my point about bringing Joel up? But but it's funny because I I I I was going to say Joel is not a '90s guy that I knew, but I I've known him. Uh-huh. I met him um, through Everest. But was right. now, did he also play? I can't remember. There's somebody in Everest, and it might have been Joel that played on a Dig record, the band Dig. Wow. Again, flipping through album covers, and I think he was on. I feel like he yes, was I think that is a Joel thing. Like I don't like I that's like one of those those weird conversations. Um that Joel like like Joel and I like like I don't know all of his early history. I'm looking real quick because again, that's like one of those things that that we were talking about with digital music being awesome. You can discover the stuff you didn't know existed. That is the one thing that we miss by not having album covers because I was the geek who was looking at and seeing. Yeah. Oh, but and so by the way, Chad played on the EP. Chad Fisher played on my EP. Okay. He didn't play on another True Fiction. We just co-wrote. Um, yeah. Because I swear, so I got to interview and and hang out with um 
Everest a, a few times. Oh, cool. Um, it's going to drive me crazy until I, yeah, he toured, he, be, yes, he first began recording and touring with the Universal Artist Dig in 1998. Oh, wow. Okay. There and again, go. I, after I had met him, somehow I made that connection and, and similar to talking to, it was Chris Joyner, right? Chris is his first name. Chris Joyner played, so like in that touring band that was bombing every day on Lollapalooza, Chris was like my keyboard player, like he played accordion a lot on that. And then like two guys in that band, Jinsu Lim, who played guitar. Oh yeah. And Davey Dave Wilder, Dave Wilder played bass. Those guys ended up being co-writers and on Macy Gray's debut record. Um, after that, or as maybe at the same time it was sort of going on and because they would always tell crazy Macy Gray stories. And I knew Dave Wilder weirdly from my Princeton days. Um, he was a bass player in this punk rock band that played with my college band. And I was like, who is this bass player who's better than me? This little scrawny Jewish, like we were both curly head Jewish bass players. And I was like, why is he better than me? This little scrawny high school guy. Um, so like there's weird circles like that. Um, and like Jin Lin's name has come up in. I don't think Jinsu even plays music anymore. I'm sure he plays, but he's not like doing it professionally. Yeah. Maybe I just remember, know his name from your band, but, but that's the same with Joel. It was like when I approached Joel, yeah. have, having already talked to him a little bit. And then I was like, um, telling him that I knew he was in dig. He's like, I don't think anybody, I don't think I've ever had anybody come up to me and say, are you the guy from dig? But, uh, I've, I mean, I know that name for sure. They, they had a, they had a, they were like a one hit, MTV yeah. Wonder with that song Believe. Yeah, I don't know it, but like I'd probably listen to it and maybe know it. Yeah. 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 So okay, so that'll catch us up. So so you did a band um with Joel called I can't remember. It's Chop Love. Chop Love Carry Fire. Carry yeah. Fire. Yeah. Chop Love Carry Fire. Like that's not even available. That was kind of in the bad years. Yeah. Like Joel kind of became like, well, ask your question, I can like Oh no no I was, no so I know I, I knew you put that out and so Joel was involved with that but you said Joel was involved with stuff that you, like you and Joel I mean, continue like, to work I on stuff like sort of like like sort of after getting dropped like I started a yoga music label we put out some records that I some of which I co-produced which I actually kind of have a life like everybody we sign has like a streaming life which is amazing this woman Donna Delory who's Madonna's backup singer for years She's like a new age yoga market, legit artist. We put out Lover and Beloved and I co-wrote a song of hers, Hey Ma Durga, which I like just heard the other day because it's like, if you search me on the internet, like it's there. And it's super cool. Like, I love that record. We gave everybody their records back. This woman, Sada Sakkar, who does like Kundalini mantras. That happened. Our label totally flopped. It was, would have probably done better if we were just a few years later. Yeah streaming and stuff because everybody's done well since then uh, i made these renee early renee and jeremy records which had sort of an initial life but it was also just itunes was starting and we're still relying on cds so it was like not something you could live on but people love them mm-hmm. the thing that i did write about those things is a friend of mine from college this guy dan porter who's like a digital entrepreneur he's got like a basketball business um, I'm not forgetting, remember what the, but he, <laughs> he 
streaming. It's going to be streaming, Jeremy, like, you know, from the graduate plastics. He's like, I was like, what are you talking about? He's like streaming it. The whole world's going to be streaming. He's like, just say yes to everything. And that was the one right thing I did with Renee and Jeremy. I was just like, okay, TuneCore. Yes, 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 yes. And we just said yes to all the streaming thing. And I'm kind of like, at that point, like the Renee and Jeremy records I was able to make just because they didn't feel connected to my other music somehow. And so it's like, on the one hand, I was really brokenhearted and not even a fan of music. Like Radiohead would be putting out Kid A and Amnesiac and I'd be like, I can't even listen to this record Mm -hmm. because they're getting praised for making the art rock that I wish that I was making. Yeah. And I sort of knew that on a certain level, but I just couldn't even say that out loud. And that's really where I was. I couldn't even like love music. Um, and, but the Renee and Jeremy records I could make somehow because I was like, I'm making music and I have young kids. I'm making music for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I was able to cut through that heartbreak. The human psyche is weird. And we made It's a Big World. The first record is kind of, it is a lullaby classic. I mean, we have, it's crazy to say, but it is. And we made this beautiful, beautiful record. Kind of, I compare it to the experience of Brad, mm-hmm. very much in that spirit. Wrote it incredibly quickly, recorded it incredibly quickly. A lot of it's live in the room that became her nursery around a mic. Um, and kind of like, a later record we made a cover record like in 2011 before i stopped really making music and um and that just kind of came out unconsciously every time i tried to sort of be conscious about making music like our second record i sort of was like oh we'll do this but more commercial they're good things but it's kind of screwed up like i just really didn't have it together because my relationship to being a fan was really broken and Joel's one of these guys who, when I met him, which was before Renee and Jeremy, just welcome Discovery Park, right around the time my kid was like two. I'm touring with Brad. It's just a weird time. And I met him and we struck it. We hit it off and we just became friends. And like he was always really supportive of everything that I was trying and everything I was trying. Like there were a lot of stops and starts. Mm -hmm. And we had a band. Before Chop Love Carry Fire, they did some recording with, you know, using New Monkey Studios, which is Elliot Smith's old studio that co-owns. And then later, um, after, but after some Renee and Jeremy stuff, but like sort of like around the time, I think of 2011, around the time of A Little Love, which was this cover record that Renee and Jeremy did that has done quite well. we did Chop Love Carry Fire with Butch, who was in Butch Norton, who was in the Eels. Oh, right. Uh, who I knew. Okay, some name dropping. <laughs> I knew from friggin' Lollapalooza. The Eels were headlining the second stage, and their show was super cool. I don't know if you knew them from that era. Did you know them? Yeah, I, not not well. I mean, I, ha- I have um, uh, the 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 big album, okay. whatever. What was it? Novocaine for the soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have that right. So that period, eels. And I think that there, there's there might be no the. It might just be eels. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I want to be right about that. So it was the original lineup of eels, and like E was kind of a little bit standoffish, but I remember like I'd eat 
you know, meals with, with Butch and Tommy and they were super cool. And Butch's drum thing was nuts. And I was like, here's another name drop. Uh, old 97s were also on the second stage. Oh, right. right. I remember commiserating with, um, what is the lead singer name? Rhett Miller. Those guys are such cool guys. And I remember being backstage. We were both not doing that well on the second stage. Like, and I remember Rhett was like, he's like, Jeremy, you and I are like cockroaches. They can, they can kill us. But we'll just keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And years later, I was like, kind of right. Like, I thought that actually I was dead, but like, I keep going back. So Butch and I stay in touch. He actually played some percussion live with Renee and Jeremy. He'd seen Renee and Jeremy do some stuff early on, like, like in like a club for a benefit. Like, and he was like, this is children's music, but this is dope, Jeremy. And so him and Joel and I, it, it was really before I had my thing together, we put together this Chop Love Carry Fire thing, and I really was trying to push it and make it happen. And it's kind of like rocky. Um, I don't even know if I'm going to try and get it redistributed. It's like, there's good things about it. The guys are amazing, mm -hmm. but the songs are not quite there. And it's like, it's just really, I think it's trying too hard. Me, I think my contributions are trying too hard, but it's also part of this thing where it's like, there were people around me who were continually supporting me. And I, after that, I just kind of was like, you know, like Renee and Jeremy wasn't really making money yet. And I was like, I got to support my family. Like, um, and I got a gig as a ghostwriter for commercial directors, which is what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Wow. And I kind of went away from music and I just, uh, it's a good paying job. Like I help commercial directors get their jobs I'm totally behind the scenes. Um, I'm not supposed to exist. Like they're supposed to be writing these things right. that are helping sell themselves to brands to get their jobs. Right. But everybody knows I exist, but I don't. Right, right. And it's weird. It's like having that job. I really thought I was retired and sort of done with music. And Renee would keep coming back to me. Tell me, interrupt any time. I'm just sort of waxing about. No, passion. keep going. Keep going. Like every year, we, we made these first three Renee and Jeremy records. And like a, a holiday EP, which has a couple of cool things on it. And some songs that I don't love. Like, I think I love our version of um, uh, Winter Wonderland. It's really dope. Check it out. <laughs> but uh, she would come to me like almost every year and be like, Are you ready to make another Renee and Jeremy record? I'd be like, I'm really busy. Like, I'm just making money right now. And like, my gig's going well and I don't have time to think about it. And I don't even know what we would write. Mm -hmm. Like my kids are like in elementary and junior high. Like, what the heck am I going to say? Like we're a lullaby artist, you know, like, um, I'd be, I'd be like the brand's not, the band's not broken up. Though. We're not broken up. You know, one day we're going to make a record. And, you know, I'd, you know, flash forward, like this happened for years and years. And um, sort of right before the plague, what I call the plague, because um, I think it's been a plague in many ways, like mm -hmm. social plague also, just I feel like it's been so divisive and destructive. Um, a subject we will not 
get into. Because <laughs> my music is really like, I'm like, you know, like all this disconnection, like we need to connect. Like that's really my whole vibe is like, we need to connect. We need to connect most with the people we feel the most disconnected from. Right. That is what needs to happen right now in this world. Like, and I'm not just saying that. And then mm-hmm. it comes from experience, like, oh, name drop. On the road with six pence and on the red shirt mm-hmm. and better than Ezra, Ezra in the battle days. This is for 1999. It's another true fiction with my hit that did not happen. You make me feel. And both super cool, but I ended up on the bus with, with, um, with Sixpence had been a Christian rock band. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that, but they had yep. gone secular with Kiss Me. Yep. And like they invited me because they saw me running around, like literally touring with these huge tour cases, like going through airports, like alone, no tour manager, nobody. And they're like, this is how you're touring, dude? I'm like, yeah, that's how I show up every day. They're like, right, give us a little bit of cash and just ride on our, on, on our crew bus. And they were all born again Christians, and we had like the craziest conversation. Because I'm like a spiritual guy and a Jew, but like mm-hmm. a mystic, but not really like a traditional Jew. And like they're born again Christians, so like we kind of think you're going to hell, Jeremy. But you seem to love Jesus. I'm like I do. <laughs> and it was like this eye-opening experience where I'm like, uh, we can be really different, and even sort of think really different things about people, and still really appreciate each other. Right. Name drop and flash forward. So perfect way to kind of wrap things up, flash forward. So um, the reason that, that you and I got in contact again after, yeah. after a little while was you put out a new single. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you want me to tell you like how this came to be or we can be very yeah. quick? I've yeah. gone on. I mean, so what happened is, is that like songs started showing up a few years ago and like I didn't finish them for a long time because I was like, I'd record like a chorus or a verse and be like, that's cute. And then at a certain point I was like, all right, Jeremy, this is insulting. Like the muse is sending you songs, start finishing these things. And that sort of started coinciding with the beginning of the play. Mm-hmm. Or it's like we had more time and, and all sorts of things were happening. I was like, my marriage was falling apart. Um, and like, start seeing new people like crazy stuff like and it's like new songs start showing up that have a different subject matter all this stuff is starting to happen and um this song conjuring comes out of me based on inspired by a certain human and also by some collective things it's very much about like the connections that humans make that are completely unique to like you and I are having mm-hmm. like you are you chip and i am me jeremy and there's this other thing that is happening that is chip and jeremy that's totally unique to us brad you put me and sean and regan and stone in a room together and that is us and you take one of us away you can still call it brad but it's no longer that mm-hmm. conjuring is very much about that concept which is like i'm conjuring a case for the space only you and i can make and it was about this collision i say it starts with a crush you know and like you know, explodes into this thing about universal and beauty. And that I had written that song and it started recording it uh, with Joel Graves, aforementioned of Everest, and this guy, Greg Cortez, goes by Killer Cortez, who's like the house engineer, but a solo artist in his own right. And this is all at Elliot Smith's old studio, New Monkey Rec. 
studio in Van Nuys. It's just like a beautiful place. And then like they're partners in my music and like so much cool music is coming through there. It's a whole other thing. Uh, and lo and behold, Renee is like, hey, maybe it's now everybody's not doing anything. Why don't we make another Renee and Jeremy record? And I'm like, oh, yeah, but I'm doing other stuff. I don't know. And the, our producer, Rich Jacks, who had done a little, a little Love, which was the last record we'd done like nine years ago in 2011, calls me up and he's like, I'm up here. I escaped from LA. I'm staying in Santa Barbara in Renee's guest house. It's not going to take a lot of time from you. It's beautiful here. Like, it's like escape zombie apocalypse. Like, you know, all you got to do is come up here. Like, I'll get your stuff done a day at a time. Come up here, drive up. It's beautiful. We'll make a record like in no time. Let's just do covers. It'll be dope. And I shelve Conjuring. Like, I, I'm like, okay, fine, fine. And I sort of like put Conjuring aside for a moment. We go... And like literally a day at a time, we record this record, Whole Lot of Love, which is our last record, which has like uh, covers of like uh, the hit is sort of, it's kind of a hit. Once a hit, always a threat. I mean, this band you might've known, Guns N' Roses, had the song called Food Child of Mine. I've heard of them, like I've heard of Rage Against the Machine. Like I, it's, I have a memory of those bands, but I don't really know a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a cult band, you know? <laughs> And so we do like this lullaby version of, of Sweet Child of Mine, which is, I think, super beautiful. And that is also like cover of Where's My Mind by the Pixies. And there's some other really cool stuff. I love actually our version of Kids by MGMT is my favorite thing. There's also an original on that record. And we, we record that and we put that out and that's doing its thing. And then like we come over, I'm like, oh, my God, I have this other stuff to go finish. And I finish um conjuring and that has just come out mm -hmm. uh, and that's with joel grade and it's like there's a beautiful video that my friend ron hamad who i might work for as a ghostwriter as a commercial director i might not because i don't know if that's allowed to be said but maybe <laughs> um and that's part of like this whole stream of solo music we have a bunch of songs that are we have like half a record that's recorded that's going to be coming out. A whole record will be coming out over the next year. We have like a song that will be coming out early next year. Very, very cool. At the same time that another, like in the meantime, another Renee and Jeremy, we've done another Renee and Jeremy record, which is going to be called Shout, uh, which is a little bit of a joke because our music is obviously not. Yes. Uh, but there's also, that is a giveaway, there will be a cover of that song. by might have heard of yeah we I do like a weird mantra version of shout like because uh renee and jeremy keeps it family friendly like it's like super indie folk like this record is completely adult sounding but we just are our, our nod to our core is that we, like we just make sure that everything is something that you could play for your family so it's like um uh, and our first single from that is uh coming out I don't know when this is coming out, but it comes out November 23rd. And it's, um, as it was, a cover with Gitalele and this weird, amazing sounding rubber string guitar and cello. And it's this beautiful, heartbreaking version of, of you might have heard of this guy. I think his name is um, 
Henry or Harry something Styles? No, I don't know him. I think the kids are fans. He might play big venues. <laughs> my daughter is my daughter. My daughter is a huge, huge Harry Styles fan. Huge, huge Harry Styles fan. I mean, that is the best aha ripoff ever. Like the production on that song. You know, it's like I'm like, well, how did nobody, nobody ever oh, yeah. fight on Take on Me? Oh, it's not so close that they should be sued, but it's clearly like that's crazy you say that because like I I, I I didn't make that connection but you're you're totally right nobody does or very yeah. like very few people do but it's like i'm like this is take on me but not so a little side plug um yeah. i interviewed the guitar player from aha two weeks ago they have a new record out that is really good it's really really oh, good cool. yeah i'll go listen to it yeah i mean i mean listen take on me undeniable oh yeah do you know that that was like the released version was like the third or fourth version of that song that it actually started um if you if you look on youtube and look up like take on me original version the guitar player had another band and it's got a different it's got a different maybe the verses are the same the chorus it you can hear how it becomes take on me but it's not the same song but you can definitely hear that that's how it started amazing right yeah. because it's like that song is perfect Right. Yes. It's just like for what it is, it's just like the genius combination of everything. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, I, would, I think I would be remiss if I don't tie up this interview with this question. Um, yeah. Going back to the 90s. So, so where are you today with the guys from Brad? I mean, obviously, Sean's no longer here. Were you, were you right. still right. friends with him? Were you still talking to him? Um, or ha have you kind of, have you guys kind of gone your separate ways or do you, do you keep in touch with anybody? Um, we actually are friends, are friends now. And we went through a long period where it was really hard. And I'll share this is a good question because it ties into actually some things that I talked about, which are really the themes that I'm dealing with um, that are in Renee and Jeremy, but are also in the solo music. Like I'm very much into this concept of uh, what I call radical forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, which is forgiveness that does not ask or contrition or anything from the person you're forgiving. In fact, it takes comes out of the Hawaiian tradition, and I'm gonna completely mispronounce it because I'm such a gringo. Ponamanamano, but there's this Hawaiian prayer which is, I'm gonna get to Brad here. I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Storytelling, which is you say, um, what is it? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. And you do this prayer for the people that you have a resentment. And in a way, you're taking responsibility for your place in a dynamic, even if you're, it's like, you're like, that person did me wrong. You're like, but I showed up so that they could not be their highest self in this dynamic, even if what they did is terrible. And this can get in trouble with people who have had really bad things done to them, and I don't want to be there. Because it's like, but the power of it is, is that it's like you release, if you do it and you do it, you fake it till you make it, you actually practice it. You have really, it has like a transformative power where you can heal the past. And one of the, the first time that I ever did that, I've never shared this, was with the guys from Brad, who I had like a really bad thing with. Like Sean and I were not good. And I don't need to get into why, we just were not good. And things he did and they did and things I did. And there was this amazing moment where I had been practicing it on those guys specifically 
at the suggestion of my rabbi friend who Dave Matthews got the tickets for. And she's like, just try it. And I got a call from, and I'm going to share this. I've never shared what actually happened from Stone. Um, and he was like, hey, we're playing at the Rocks and you want to come up and play Buttercup. And I'd been doing that prayer for like a few months. And I was like, you know what? I do. That would be beautiful. And I remember walking to the friggin' Roxy. I parked. I had my, I don't even, I didn't have a bass with me. I was going to use their bass. And I was like, God, like, I really love those guys. Like, mm-hmm. these guys are my guys. Like, and it's not fake. Like, I love them. Like, they're an important part of my life. And we made beautiful things together. And I was like, this is an amazing feeling. And then like, I get called up on stage and I will share a lot of it, but I'm not going to share the specifics because it's between John and I. And I get called up on stage and Sean Smith gives me, everybody goes crazy. It's the Roxy. It's not a big club, but it's Brad's fans, the ones who stuck around. They're not messing around and they know who I am because, you know, it's like any cult. It's like, it's like, oh my God, that's Jeremy. You know, like, I'm like, yeah, it's me, yo. And Sean gives me a big hug and he whispers something in my ear. And, and we have like the big, this big hug and we play Buttercup. And it was like an amazing moment because I don't know if he was doing stuff on his own that also made it possible. I have no idea. We've never talked about how it happened. Mm. But like, like in that moment, we were like brothers, like the brothers we are always supposed to meant to be. And it's like, to me, it's like, this is the possibility for everybody. This is the possibility for our culture. Like, yeah, I'm good with those guys. Regan and I are good. Like, I haven't seen him. I want to see him. Like, we talk. Like, I was super responsible. Like, you know, unfortunately, Sean passed during mm-hmm. it. Like, or like urging those guys to get Brad's music and now Sean's music out digitally. I was like, stop with all this stuff. Like, everybody on the world needs to know, in the world needs to have this stuff streamed. You know, so like, um, you know, Stone is super helpful in introducing me to people. Like, as we we're discussing about like distribution for my new, for my new and Jeremy and my new stuff. So yeah, we're good. We're really good. And like, I hope to see them. And I hope one day, maybe I don't know, maybe we'll make some music together. Maybe we'll do something. Actually, uh, Joel and I have a plan. I think Regan. I, I don't know if he knows yet. We, we have this thing. Regan has this thing that we call the Regan Shuffle which is the groove that he plays on Buttercup. And I think he also plays it like on Suffering. It's like this thing, this thing that he does on the ballad. And we call it, it's Joel's invention. We call it the Regan Shuffle. And there's a song that Joel and I wrote and we're like, oh, Regan's going to play on this mofo. We're going to get the Regan Shuffle on this one. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're good. good. Very cool. So I think this is a good point to wrap it up. Um, You know, obviously awesome talking to you like i said we trade emails not all the time but every couple of years and so it's cool to be able to just sit down and have yeah, this conversation man. with you and um just appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us uh such a such a fun conversation i hope i didn't go on too long i mean like i can yeah so i'm the same way i get it so <laughs> very good all right Chip. super awesome talking man. thanks for listening to support the podcast 
visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Dance. Wander just a desert throne, caution this